Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we are finishing a book of the Bible, uh, which, you know, we only get to do 66 times. So it's a special, it's a special thing. Uh, I always like finishing. I like finishing things we've started. We, you know, we started in 1 Corinthians uh, many moons ago, and uh, now we're finishing up the book. We'll start in 2 Corinthians next week. I will read the entire chapter. You can follow along in your own Bibles, starting in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a, little, a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch. Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, that it is living, that it is active, that this word in 1 Corinthians is profitable for us. We pray that the result of seeing the truths of your word would be that the men and women of God that you have called would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray your anointing on our ears, on my voice, on this time that we are dedicating to you to receive good things from your word. We pray that you would meet your church here in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Paul is just absolutely in love with the Corinthians of all people. Paul loves the Corinthians. He loves the church. 
Uh, we know that there's that one chapter in 1 Corinthians that's all about love, uh, but in the rest of the book, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the motives behind the letter, right, behind the writing. And in chapter 16, we're reminded that 1 Corinthians is a strange kind of love letter. Paul absolutely loves the Corinthians. Now, the outline of the chapter we just read, it's something like this. Uh, verses 1 through 4, it talks about taking up a collection, some practical business issues that Paul has to deal with. Verses 5 through 12, uh, Paul talks about his future travel plans and makes some personal notes. And verses 13 and 14, there's a little bit of preaching. Those verses would make a good sermon, huh? Uh, the final encouragement saying what to do. Sounds like Paul sounds really gospelly and Christian. And then there's some more personal notes in 17 and 18. And then verses 19 through 23 is this long farewell. It's Paul signing off. See you soon. Um, really, the whole of chapter 16 is just a long goodbye. Um, it's tying up loose ends. It's getting the practical stuff out of the way. You got to put it somewhere in the letter. And now seems as good a place as any. The apostle has said everything he really needs to say to the Corinthians in terms of the correction, the instruction, answering their questions. In the, in the letter that they wrote to him. Um, he's addressed the major problems in the church. He's attempted to realign their focus on the resurrected Jesus. Some of the letter has been hard. He's had to bring some strong correction. Uh, he excommunicated a guy through the mail. That's hard. Um, you know, and, and he's done some really good, strong preaching. But here in chapter 16, we're really reminded that the Corinthians are, despite all that correction, the, the Corinthians are Paul's friends. They're, they're his family. He is a pastor to them. He considers himself a father to them. He loves them. Now, it's not super emotional. He's not overly expressive, but he does write in a way that is familiar and calm. Some of it's like the small talk that two people engage in who have similar experiences and acquaintances. He talks about individuals that they all know, places that they all know. And he mentions his travel plans for the winter. And he does say, I hope to see you. I hope to spend a lot of time with you. And then he writes something else in this chapter that Paul does not write in any of his other letters. You'll notice he has some, some uh, copy and paste stuff going on in his letters. Have you noticed that? Like they all start kind of the same way. They all end similarly with kind of the same word. You, you can recognize, like, oh, this is how Paul ends a letter. Okay, I know we're wrapping it up. But Paul includes something in 1 Corinthians that is not present in any of his other epistles. He says at the end of this long corrective letter, I love you. Actually, the words are, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, which is a fancy biblical way of saying, I love you. Paul calls a lot of people beloved at the beginning of his letters. But here at the end, when he usually commends the church that he's writing to or the individual to God and is done with it, now Paul adds this final word, my love be with you all. In 2 Corinthians, which we'll start next week, Paul explains a bit more of why he wrote to them at all. And he wrote several letters to them. He says, it's because I love you so much. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. And in chapter 16, we're reminded of this. All the things written in the previous 15 chapters, it was written because Paul deeply loved the church. And he wrote because he wanted them to know the love which I have so abundantly for you. <laughs> this last chapter, it's the least 
uh, you know, doctrinal of the of the book. We're not talking about spiritual gifts, communion, uh, church divisions, church discipline, church government, the resurrection, not all that stuff. It's it's the least preachy in the book, but it's in this casual, almost mundane tone that there's comfort that Paul brings to this church. The tone changes, and everyone reading the letter can be reminded, yeah, we're still friends. He's going to come over to our place, and we're going to have, you know, we're going to have a meal together. Paul's going to come and stay with us for a while, and he still includes us as ministry partners. He wants to be sent from our church. We're family. Paul is confidently shepherding these people, and we've seen that he has hope that the Lord will use his corrections to fix what needs to be fixed. And now Paul is making traveling plans and hoping to spend a season with this church that he loves. He's helping them personally work through some stuff that they need to work through. So let's take this one piece at a time. Go back to verse 1. He says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Uh, there's a there's a, a theme here through Corinthians that you notice where Paul says, now concerning this, or now concerning this, or I don't want you to be ignorant of this. And those phrases seem to indicate that Paul is answering a question that they have posed to him. Um, he's referring to something the Corinthians asked about previously. He talks like this throughout the book. And they had asked questions about how maybe they could help with the, the famine and severe persecution that was going on in Jerusalem at this time. They'd asked questions about raising money, fundraising. Uh, this was a collection for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where it was hardest to be a Christian at this time. Uh, Paul was very active in raising funds for this church. He mentions it uh, in the book of Galatians, and he, he says right here, he says, we gave orders in the church, uh, to the churches of Galatia. You can read about it in Galatians. He says that caring for the poor is the one thing that he really wanted to do. And so Paul is saying this is how we can raise funds for this, uh, this church in Jerusalem. Practically speaking, Paul said the best way to do this is to have the collections at their weekly gathering, the first day of the week, that's Sunday. So that when Paul comes, he doesn't have to spend all of their time doing fundraisers. And if Paul's visiting your house and having a bunch of people over and they want to see how he is, he's not going to be asking for money that whole time. It just makes the meal kind of awkward. Paul doesn't want to come to the church as the multi-layer marketing guy, you know? He's a, he, he doesn't want to be, a, uh, be the, just the collector when he's there. He's, he wants to be their father. And he says, I don't want a collection to happen while I'm, while I'm there. Why? Two reasons, I think. He's looking forward to spending quality time with his friends in Corinth, and using that time going around asking for money wouldn't be the best use of Paul's time. But the second reason, I think he wants to avoid the manipulation. You know, asking for money can be hard on both ends. And Paul could go around making these heart-rending appeals that drum up support for the orphanage that he wants to build in Jerusalem, but he'd rather just let each one decide in their own heart what they want to give, and they can give it themselves before he ever shows up. I like Paul's style. After the collection is made, they would then choose someone to bring that money to Jerusalem. It becomes a short-term mission trip for somebody. And they would either go by themselves or with Paul, and they could work out those details later. But you see that Paul is saying, maybe we can go together. Maybe we can do this together. And so seeing all of 1 Corinthians in this, with this frame of reference, it's not Paul versus the church. It's not Paul just whipping the church into submission. 
It's not Paul being so angry at this church that he's just done. He's just going to throw up his hands and say, they've got so many problems. We're just, what? just do your own thing. Fine. You don't want me as your apostle and do your own thing. He says, no, we're in this together and we can raise funds for Jerusalem and they can come with me and we'll do it together. Verse five says, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Paul is hoping to spend the winter with the Corinthians. He doesn't want a short visit. He wants a long one. And he's inviting them into the apostles' missionary journey. You may send me on my journey. Remember how a couple of the big problems in Corinth were that, you know, they were cliquish. Um, and another one is that they didn't want to submit to authority. Both of these things are ways a person or a group of people isolate themselves from a larger community. And in Proverbs, it says the one who isolates himself does so to his own hurt. This damages people. This damages churches when they become insular or, like I said, cliquish. Now, Paul has corrected some of that in his letter, right? And now he's correcting some of their behaviors. He, he has, a, when he's corrected certain of their behaviors, he's appealed to the greater community of the church of God. He says we have this kind of custom in the churches of God. This is how we do it in the churches of God of which you are a part. And we've seen that he is pulling the Corinthians back into a greater community, really a greater unity. So with this collection, he's showing them that they are part of the body that is suffering in Jerusalem. He says, you're still part of, part of the one team. There's one church. With, with this visit, and then with his send-off, he's saying, you are a part of the, the church's purpose, and my purpose of preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth, you have a part to play in that. I want to include you in these ministries that the Spirit is, is doing. And they had lots of problems that, that were really just theirs, you know, stuff that would have been a big problem in Corinth, but that didn't matter so much to the Philippians or the Ephesians. It was just Corinth problems. And, but while the problems might have been narrow, the good work that God was inviting them into was broad. The church is part of a project that is bigger than itself, the local expression of the church. Um, you are part of a church that is bigger than our church. The church is part of something that has been going on since Christ rose from the dead, or you could argue even before the foundation of the world. And we are included in God's project in literally saving the world. And while the Corinthians were dividing themselves and dividing and further dividing and these proto-denominations becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, he's like, no, 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 big picture. Let's serve the poor. Let's help the persecuted church. Let's preach the gospel. I'm inviting you. I am including you in this project. Bringing the Corinthians into community. This is what the apostle is, con the apostle is concerned with. When he comes to visit from out of town, uh, he would be reminding them that they're part of his team. When he says, you can be my sending church, I'll leave your church on my next missionary journey, they get to be part of that trip. Sending is a serious ministry. You guys have done this really well. Um, that's part of the church's ministry and part of missions. And this is this is something, of course, that, you know, Jerusalem needed. They needed the money. They needed the fundraising or whatever. The, the nations needed the gospel preached to them through Paul. But this project is something that the Corinthians needed, like medicine. To be involved in this kind of outreach was something the sectarian church needed. Missions is still like this. 
For the most part, it's impossible to be a part of missionary work for very long and not become associated with Christians from other denominations. The divisions of denominationalism, as it stands, is kind of a luxury that we get when we're not working the front lines. Uh, It's very common for churches in the States not to associate with one another for whatever reason, but the missionaries each church sends will cooperate with each other in the important work overseas. Um, the way we see our, the more we see our job as front lines missionary work wherever we are, the less cliquish we will be. It will be the job that matters, the job that the Spirit is doing in reaching the lost. Missions, um, th- this goes as member, for members inside the same church as well. Of course, within a church, you can have division, you can have hostility. But, um, you know, as we see uh, missions as a goal within a church, it becomes like medicine for that church. A church that is too focused on what's going on within the doors of the church needs to get out of them more often. Paul, in bringing the Corinthians, of all people, into his missionary support team, he's not begging. He's not saying, I really need you guys to send me on this trip. No, no, he is serving. He is serving the church in Corinth, saying, you're still part of the team. He's doing what he's been doing in the rest of the letter, which is realigning their priorities and as a result, correcting their bad thinking. He is drawing them out of their hostilities, their false divisions, and saying, let's get back to work, guys. Let's get back to work. Let's, let's, send, let's go help the poor. Let's go feed the hungry. Let's go preach the gospel. And he's bringing the Corinthians, again, of all people, the Corinthians, into that work. This is the medicine that they needed. Being a part of missions is one way that this bad thinking that the Corinthians had is being corrected. Verses 8 and 9 give us a bit of wisdom and a clear picture of how ministry works a lot of times. Paul says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because it's real hard. Oh, man, it's really bad here. So that's where I'm going to be. Now, the same could be said about Corinth, couldn't it? There's many that opposed Paul. Paul is aware of his enemies in that city, but he didn't see opposition as the last word. He saw the great and effective door that has been opened to him, and this is often the way it is. Opportunities are not always or even usually easy. Uh, Frequently, the best thing you can do will also be the most difficult thing you're asked to do. Paul is staying in Ephesus because there was a great opportunity for the gospel to thrive there, but also because he couldn't do the hard work that needed to be done just through a letter. He had to fight bad guys. He had to be there on the ground. He had to go wage spiritual warfare. And he says, there's an effective door, lots of enemies. I need to be here fighting this good fight. Now, this principle can be confusing for us sometimes because sometimes adversity can sure look like a closed door, right? Don't be too quick to draw that conclusion. Of course, at the end of the day, there's just going to be a need for wisdom, godly counsel, and an ear that is tuned to the Holy Spirit. But in general, you need to be aware that the great and effective doors will almost always have many adversaries. The road is narrow. There are few who find it. Again, the good things that the Lord will have for you will also be the hardest things you do. If you are advancing into a kingdom of darkness, it will be dark. Deep truths here, right? I wrote that one myself, right? 
This is Paul's experience. This is what we see in Scripture. And, and, and his response to this darkness is, I got to stay. This is where I belong. I need to stay longer to tarry in verse 8. It means to stay a bit longer. I've got to stick with it because it's getting really hard. So I need to stay. Now let's keep going. Verse 10 says, And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Uh, he says, be nice to Timothy. Uh, and now I wonder, I wonder if Timothy had expressed some sort of fear in doing this trip to Corinth and back. Like he's going to go to Corinth, bring a message, and then take a message back from Corinth to Paul. And we'll, we'll see in 2 Corinthians, not to spoil what's coming ahead, but the message he brings back, it's not great. Um, so, so maybe Timothy's like, do I have to go to, this? like, this kind of sounds like Paul is trying to tell them, hey, be nice to Timothy, please. Like, don't scare the kid. You guys can come on pretty strong. And Timothy isn't used to people like you. Please be nice. Um, but saying that Timothy's going to be there and be nice to him, this is another way that Paul is bringing the Corinthians into the greater awareness of their place within the family of God, saying, I'm sending my son, receive him. It's another way that Paul is trusting the Corinthians and being in unity with them. It's clear that whatever division existed between the apostle and this church are being healed. Paul has full assurance of faith that they are going to be healed. He is convinced that the divisions will be overcome. Now, Apollos, that's interesting. You remember this was actually a reason for the division in Corinth. Remember how there were some people saying, I am of Paul, and other people saying, I am of Apollos. And then there's really super spiritual people saying, well, I'm of Jesus. I'm above all. Yeah, they had all those problems in Corinth. And Paul says, you're not allowed to say that anymore. Well, here we see this, this idea that Paul and Apollos could possibly be on opposing teams is just nonsense. Paul says, our brother, Apollos, my buddy, the guy we do business with, we do doing ministry together and stuff like that. There's unity in these words that ought to undo all the divisions in Corinth. And we see that, that Paul's heart towards Apollos, it doesn't have any room for envy. He says, oh, I wanted to bring him with me. It'd be really hard to decide which denomination you're in when both guys are behind the pulpit, huh? It's like, which, which, it's like a wedding, you know, his side, her side. And Paul and Apollos were going to go do ministry together to show there isn't a divided church. It doesn't exist. There might be people who have isolated themselves from the church. There may be members of the body that have amputated themselves, and that's really gross, but there is not a divided church. He says, I wanted to bring him with me. I wanted him to come visit you because I know what a great preacher he is and how much some of you love him, but he can't come right now. And Paul is modeling humble, loving unity and inviting the Corinthians into the same. And he says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. This corrective letter has officially changed gears. Uh, you know, there were, there were several chapters of Paul just saying, stop it. Don't do that. And it's now, instead of correcting, he's encouraging, says, do this. Be brave. Be strong. Stand fast. Watch carefully. Do everything with love. Now, all the four things in verse 13 are kind of the same thing. 
Uh, they all paint the picture of someone standing guard, being in a constant position of readiness. We also see each one of these encouragements elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus tells his disciples to watch many times. Paul says, stand fast several times. Several, several times just to the Galatians, he says to stand fast in liberty. To the Philippians, he says stand fast in unity. To the Thessalonians, he says stand fast in the teachings of the apostles. Be consistent. Don't wander. Don't veer. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Actually, the, the word precisely translated means act like a man. That's what the word is in, uh, in, in Greek. Be brave works. I think it's a fine translation. Get ready to work. Be ready to fight. Do hard things. Don't grow weary in doing good. Be strong. This is another thing that Paul says elsewhere. You know Ephesians 6 when you hear it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Be ready. Be ready. Be watchful. What does that look like? It looks like verse 14. Let all that you do be done with love. When Jesus talks about his coming and uh, he, he talks about those who do not watch for their master's coming, he says that those who don't watch are the ones that are mistreating the other servants. Loving people is part of watching. It's impossible to separate standing fast in the faith from standing fast in hope and love. To be brave and strong is to courageously love people, even and especially the undeserving, often at great expense to yourself seems like there were some people in Corinth, maybe some of their leaders, who actually modeled this kind of life. Because Paul gives some of them a shout out here in the next verses. He says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Portunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. These people are some of the leadership in, in Corinth. Stephanus, he's called the first fruits of Achaia, so he's probably the first guy to get saved in that part of the world. Achaia was a region, like a state of Corinth being at its, its capital. Um, Stephanus, along with these other people mentioned, are people who have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Think about this. Think about all the things we read in Corinth, all the trouble. And remember, that in the midst of that, there were some people other than Paul who were devoted to serving that church. When the Corinthians were having problems and questions, it may have been these men who brought the messages back and forth from Paul, since Paul says that they refreshed my spirit and yours. These are guys trying to maintain a connection with the apostles while their home church, Corinth, is going off the rails and trying to cut ties from the apostles. Well, the church was at its worst, and if you have to find a worse church, Corinth might make the short list. There were people who were devoted to serving it. And now Paul is saying, these are good leaders. You want to be under these men. It is to your benefit that you submit to this leadership. Paul says, acknowledge such men. So we are. So we're doing it today. How about that? You get to obey the Bible today, right now. We are acknowledging. We'd just like to thank God for Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Praise God for those guys who have devoted themselves to Christ's bride when she was not looking her best. Praise the Lord for people who share in Christ's heart, who love and serve struggling churches, ugly churches, 
people who sacrificed their own lives for a willful church, a divided church, a spiteful church. These men, even in their relative anonymity, show us Christ, who became nothing that we might be saved. In verse 19, he says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Uh, What Paul called Asia, we call Turkey. One of the most prominent churches in this region was the church in Ephesus, where Paul was staying while he was writing this letter. Aquila and Priscilla are characters we know from the book of Acts and elsewhere. We know that they had been in Corinth with Paul um, and that they had eventually ended up in Ephesus, also with Paul. They were the ones who worked with Paul in his tent-making business in Corinth and were also the couple that had sort of adopted uh, a young, talented preacher named Apollos and helped him along where his theology was lacking. Really neat couple, kind of a ministry power couple. Um, They had helped start a church in Corinth, and then when now they're in Ephesus, they are also hosting another church in their home. So when Paul says, all the brethren greet you, the Corinthians know some of those people, like Priscilla and Aquila. And he says, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Still promoting unity right to the very end. He's telling members of different factions within the church to kiss and make up, quite literally. Now, a holy kiss, this was a real thing. It doesn't translate very well culturally, so we just have to work extra hard to see the importance of this holy kiss. We have a hard time imagining it to be holy, but that's what Paul calls it. It was an extremely up-close and personal greeting that was a confession of your place in the family of God. I, we don't have an equivalent. This, you can't just read this and be like, yeah, it's like a handshake. It's like, no, a kiss is never like a handshake, actually. Never confuse those two things, okay? Um, it's not like that. Um, it's, it's not something, a holy kiss, as Paul read, it's not something that you would share with just anyone coming over for dinner. It's not like the Europe both cheeks kiss or anything. And, oh, it's fine here. It's normal. It's not like that. It was not like that. It was something holy, which was reserved for people in the church as a way of saying, you are my family. We're together. I love you. I'm not making an argument for the return of this custom, but I am saying that without this custom in place, we have to work extra hard in order to convey the same meaning that it did. We need to develop habits of greeting one another in ways that make the same things clear. You are my family. We are together. I love you. This is another way in which Paul, Paul's command to let everything be done in love could be obeyed and put into practice. The Corinthians needed this. They would have resisted this. They needed a reminder of the true unity that exists in Christ, and the way they were going to be reminded of it was by expressing it. This is the purpose of much of our worship service, isn't it? In order to bring to our mind the right things, we do them. We say them. We sing them. We eat and drink in remembrance, desiring that the members of the Corinthians church walk in love towards one another. Paul gives them a thing to do to express that love that they wouldn't have necessarily had just by mustering up the feelings. We're supposed to love people in our church. So he doesn't say, shut your eyes and pretend like you love the people in your church. He says, no, kiss them. That's how we're going to fix this. The command is not to feel love towards people. It is to do whatever you do in love. Actions 
are to be done in accordance with the command. Act according to the command. Do the things that convey the message, you are my family, we are together in Christ, and I love you, but don't kiss people. Get that on your mind right now. Okay, verse 21. Verse 21, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Paul would often have a secretary, probably Sosthenes in this case, write the letter, and then he would sign the end of the letter himself. So that's what this is. This is the official seal and signature of Paul, so they know it's really him. See, it's my own handwriting. There's my signature, Paul. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Does anyone else see the repeated theme in this last chapter again? Let all that you do be done in love. Greet one another with a holy kiss. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be a curse. Paul really cares about love in the church of Corinth, loving people and loving God. Now, this statement is somewhat strong. It's actually the strongest language I can find in a book full of strong language. He says, let him be a curse. I don't think I've ever ended a sermon with this. I don't know if I should try. Um, but Corinthian, the Corinthians had been, the, you know, they'd been getting this letter correcting them, and Paul had told the church to clean house and get rid of some of the problem people. By, but this still is far the, by far the strongest language he could have used. And he didn't use this word, curse, in talking about the divisive people in the church. He didn't say curse them, curse them, send them out, and just let them be a curse. He did not talk about the immoral people in the church that he still wanted away from the church, but he still did not say, let them be accursed. He didn't talk this way about the disruptive, disruptive people or the rebellious people or the people with bad doctrine. All of those problems could be corrected with a softer hand. In 2 Corinthians, he even tells them to welcome back some of these people after they had had a time of repentance. But now Paul just puts down a curse. The word he uses is anathema. And once a person has been anathematized, at least in Hebrew culture, they were considered dead. There's virtually no hope of reconciliation at that point. There were those who denied the resurrection. We read about them in chapter 15. Paul argues them back to the truth, but he didn't say, you're cursed now. But here, here is the line in the sand that Paul confidently draws. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. According to Paul, there's no place in the church for lovelessness. We see Jesus say much the same thing in his letters to the churches in Revelation. Uh, we see the greatest commandment, according to Moses and Jesus both, love the Lord your God. Still the greatest commandment, nothing has changed. Which means that it ought to be our goal above every other goal to develop and grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. When we confess our sins and repent of them, this ought to be near the top of the list. God, I have not loved you as I ought. And then this should be followed up by a confession. I love you. I think of the prayer, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible, a short one. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm sure it's appropriate to modify this prayer and say, I love you, Lord. Help my lovelessness. To not be loving the Lord Jesus Christ is to be living in a cursed state. It's to live a cursed life. The blessed life that you have been invited to, that has been purchased for you, is a life filled with love for Jesus. All the last 16 chapters, all the corrections and all the teachings, they were all for this, that the church would love Jesus. 
and walk in love. Every last one of the thing, these things uh, was written by Paul because Paul loved Jesus. His love for Jesus overflows at the end of this chapter with his longing prayer, Oh, Lord, come. I love you, Jesus, so much. I want your presence more than anything. That's the prayer. The prayer in Aramaic would have been Maranatha. And sometimes Paul just puts the Aramaic word right in there, even though he's writing in Greek. Uh, here he, he translated it in, into Greek. But it was one of the most common prayers in the early church. And, and it seems to have a sort of double meaning, or at least maybe levels or shades to meaning. There's a sense in which Maranatha could be read, Our Lord has come, which is a confession that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Lord. And that his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection was the work of the Lord. The Lord has come. For those who had waited a long time for the Messiah to say the Lord has come was important. But a prayer, the prayer could also be translated the, wall, the way Paul does it here. Oh, Lord, come. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in this sense, it's a prayer of anticipation and hope. So it's a double-edged prayer. It's fitting that we pray this prayer in our communion when we proclaim the Lord's death, past tense, until he comes, future tense, Maranatha. This double-edged prayer, it proclaims the first coming of Christ and announces the second. It's a prayer of confidence, announcing like we do at Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord is come. And it is a prayer of hope, like we pray at Christmas, O come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come, O come, Emmanuel, Maranatha. The Lord has come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Final words. After this one letter, which is his second longest letter after Romans, what's the main point? The final message he'd leave them with. The famous last words of the Apostle Paul. There's three. Grace, love, and Jesus. <laughs> Paul prays that the grace of Jesus would be with them. That's how he starts his letters, too. He tells them his love is with them. Again, the only time he ends a letter like this is with this church, whom he considered to be his wayward children. But all of this is in Christ Jesus. Before amen, the last word is Jesus. And he has given them the love of Jesus. That's no coincidence that these appear together. He has given them the gospel of Jesus. And he, a father to them in Christ loves them as children in Christ. You can love the church too. Paul invites us, let everything you do be done in love. And he, this is a letter that he wrote on the supremacy of love. We see that in chapter 13. He models it for us here at the close and in much greater detail in 2 Corinthians. May we share in this love for Christ's church, no matter her immediate appearance, no matter her mood, let us love the people of God enough to care for them the way Paul cares for Corinth. In this book that dedicates pages and pages to the works of the Holy Spirit and also gives us the best chapter on the importance and nature of love, let, a, let the impact of this book we've been studying for many, many months be that we long for the Holy Spirit to pour out the love of God into our hearts. May the fruit of the Spirit that is love become a recognizable characteristic in our lives. May we love the church like Paul did. May we love the Lord Jesus like we ought to. May we hope in his coming. Let that hope have its intended purifying effect in our hearts. Maranatha.
come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Pray with me, please. Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we are part of your church. We thank you for your love for us and the love that your Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts. May we love well. We know in your presence, Jesus, that we are loved well. May we love as we have been loved. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy You are sent. Off with you. Woohoo!